Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. Hi, my friends who listen to Future Primitive. Today, I'm with Daniel Pinchbeck on the phone. He is the author of Breaking Open the Head, The Return of Quetzalcoatl, Notes from the Edge of Time, and his latest book that came out on February 17, How Soon Is Now? Uh, Features a preface from Sting and an introduction from Russell Brand. How Soon Is Now? looks at the ecological crisis as a rite of passage and initiation for humanity and proposes a blueprint for the future how we must redesign our technical and social systems to avert the worst consequences of ecological collapse. So uh, I know many of you know who uh, Daniel Pinchbeck is. He launched the web magazine Reality Sandwich and co-founded Evolver.net Uh, as well as the publishing imprint Evolver Editions. He's been a speaker at conferences and festivals all over the world. He's written introductions for books, including The Psychedelic Experience by Timothy Leary, The Joyous Cosmology by Alan Watts, and Rainforest Medicine. Tell us what um, tell us what you're doing now in your everyday life, Daniel. My everyday life. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I mean, I'm uh, doing some other writing. I mean, I actually, um, after finishing How Soon Is Now, I went back to a novel that I first written a draft of like 20 years ago, and I, I you know, wrote another draft of it. That's been fun, kind of just a different way of using my uh, my creativity. And I have another book to write on uh, ayahuasca, so I'm beginning to research that. I also started a podcast myself that's on iTunes, How Soon Is Now, and i um, been speaking a lot. I've been doing some collaborations with a really amazing, uh, intuitive uh, healer, uh, Bobby Klein, who uh, works out of uh, Tulum in Mexico. So we just did an event together uh, outside of London, and we're going to do some other work together in, in Mexico and in, in Miami in the fall. So, um, yeah, all sorts of stuff. So what uh, made you, because uh, writing a book is time-consuming concentration, it's like uh, crossing the Atlantic in a sailboat, Uh, what made you choose the topic of How Soon Is Now? Yeah, I mean, with my books, it doesn't really feel like, um, I I guess it's a choice, but essentially... Each time some subject really uh, fascinates or compels me, and I feel that um, you know there's some there's something that I want to understand that I can't find any cultural artifact 
that really makes it clear and comprehensible. So for the first book, Breaking Open the Head, the question was really, um, you know, the psychedelic experience is so profound and transformative, and so many cultures around the world see visionary plants as sacred and sacraments and so on. Why did our modern culture uh, repress all of this? Why, why were psychedelics ridiculed and reviled? Mm-hmm. Why can't we take altered states seriously? Uh, the second book, 2012, The Return of Capsule Quaddle, was sort of, was, to me, was a logical outgrowth of the first book, because I began to realize that um, indigenous cultures actually had a huge uh, knowledge uh, about, uh, you know, visionary experience, psychic phenomena, and so on, that our culture had lost, and that a lot of these indigenous cultures around the world understood this time as a prophetic time of transformation, and I felt that nobody had really understood what that could mean to, to, to my satisfaction. So that led me to do 2012, and when I finished that book, I felt that I had understood the meaning of these prophecies of cultures like the Maya, the Hopi, and even the Western Geo-Christian apocalypse and Hindu idea of the Yuga cycle. I'd mm-hmm. understood that all and integrated it all, but I didn't really understand what would potentially be the mechanics for a positive uh, transformation of human society and the Earth so that we could avert, you know, really suffering the worst consequences of ecological disaster and, and uh, you know, so many people having to perish and in wars and so on, and drought and so on. So that, that really became the, the, the passionate inquiry that fueled uh, this new book, How Soon Is Now. And also you have a daughter, right? I do. Uh, so I'm sure that some of it, some of this, this concern, compassion and empathy for the earth came from you ha- having a daughter. Uh, yeah, most likely, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, somehow, it's, I mean, there are people who don't have children who have a deep concern and empathy for the earth, but uh, I'm sure it added something. So uh, Sting uh, says that we are, uh, in your book, says that we are at a time of great danger and opportunity. And Russell Brand mentions that we need a revolution of consciousness. And, uh, And that's your understanding, too. Would you speak about those two things? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, in terms of the danger, uh, you know, all the ecological indicators are, are really drastic. And they're, they're a lot worse than most people have fully uh, fathomed and understood. Like, we're losing 10% of the world's biodiversity every 10 to 15 years, and oceans are 30% more acidic than they were 40 years ago. That's leading to the coral reefs kind of breaking, uh, disintegrating. Uh, you know, there's a chance, potential for runaway climate change because all these feedback loops are getting engaged. Uh, the Arctic melts and forests aren't burning because there's more droughts and so on. So, um, yeah, so the danger is very real. And then, of course, adding on top of that, we now have the danger of these kind of progressive authoritarian uh, regimes who are kind of like, uh, you know, both teenage bullies throwing around the threats of uh, nuclear conflict and so on. So it's all pretty, pretty scary stuff. Um, what was the Russell Brand quote again? Revolution of consciousness. Yeah, I guess, you know, I mean, there are books out, like there's a book called Drawdown by Paul Hawken that just came out, which looks at all the things we might do on a material and technical level to approach climate change and CO2 and species extinction. But uh, I think there's a deeper level to that. It's really going to require a deeper paradigm shift 
and a kind of, uh, yeah, kind of a spiritual evolution or revolution, kind of a general awareness that this is our kind of uh, initiation process as a species, like shifting from you know, sort of self-interested, ego-based individuality to a uh, more cooperative, uh, interdependent uh, understanding of the universe uh, and putting those, those, those new understandings into action. So this is a, a shamanic initiation of the whole human species. That's kind of my theory. You know, I know, I know that's pretty crazy and sounds kind of grandiose. Um, but uh, yeah, if we look at disasters in the past, sometimes they really do uh, bring about that type of uh, uh, new consciousness. You know, like even uh, England during the Second World War, when everybody band together to... Uh, fight the common foe, and in the U.S., after Pearl Harbor, uh, they uh, transferred all of their industry to wartime production in two years, nobody could get a new car, and they actually took 94% of the wealth of the, you know, from the top 1% and used that to fuel the effort to defeat the common foe. Tell me, Daniel, do you think that the cosmos is counting on human consciousness, or even the planet herself? I mean, you know, there's a very popular idea is that, um, you know, it really doesn't matter because, you know, the Earth, you know, if we, if we fail, the Earth will just make something better than us. Uh, and maybe we're just a blip and we're just preparation for the next species. But I, I tend to think that's a very short-sighted way to look at it. And that actually, look, it's more like the Earth uh, spent a long time creating the proper conditions for, for our existence and uh, even allowing... The, you know, the sort of accumulation of all these minerals under the earth and, and fuel and so on, which have kind of, you know, fueled the, uh, the, the rapid growth of this industrial civilization. So, yeah, maybe, maybe that's all a trigger for another level of, of transformation, another layer. Well, there's a line in your book that, uh, to me, I would like to put in a bumper sticker and that's healing is overcoming our sense of entitlement. Yeah, that, that for me is a very profound uh, idea. I mean, um, I feel that the, the sort of, you know, new age or contemporary spiritual culture has lost its way a little bit. Uh, it's much more about individual transcendence. And, um, yeah, we need to think about uh, the coherence of a community, and, how, and, 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 and that is a part of what uh, transcendence means. Well, when uh, you were traveling in the fast lane in Silicon Valley or going to fancy parties and meeting moguls all over the world, did you feel that uh, there was a possibility that uh, these people could overcome their sense of entitlement? coming from the money that they're making? Uh, it, it's difficult, but I think it is possible. Uh, and, um, you know, certainly ayahuasca has proved to be a powerful tool that, that sort of uh, even people who have a lot of privilege and wealth will often have a kind of phenomenological uh, kind of uh, encounter uh, that will change their life pattern, what they're doing with their resources, and so on. You've seen that happen. Many times, though, yeah. You say that ayahuasca uh, in um, 
is your favorite is your favorite psychedelic journey plant? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or more than uh, more transforming than MDMA or LSD or. Well, I mean, you know, ayahuasca. Usually, you take it in a ceremony. So you have a presiding shaman who knows the Icaros, like healing chants. And when you're under the effect of the medicine, you really feel the, the, the power of those chants. Like they really feel like they're plucking at your whole nervous system. I mean, the way most people do those other substances you mentioned is far more, you know, recreational. It's far more kind of haphazard. Uh, and uh, you know, I don't know how, how you know if it's as trustworthy, you know, to create a good result. How do we? live in community it looks like it hasn't been very successful up till now but that is one of the solutions to evolution evolving consciousness isn't it uh yeah i mean there's many different forms of community Uh, i mean you know there can be communities within urban centers also um i mean there's a lot of uh, ecological advantages in, in community living People can share resources and uh, share childcare and so on. Uh, one of the communities that I explore um, in, in the book uh, is called Pimera. It's a community in Portugal that I visited a number of times, and I think it's providing a really fascinating radical template for kind of a new society. Uh, and um, not that this would be the, you know, the, the, the case for all communities, or may, you know, maybe even many communities, but... Uh, part of what they're modeling there is, is a new um, kind of template for human relationships that are uh, non-possessive and authentic, that are rooted in, in trust and authentic communication. And um, it's actually quite amazing to see 170 people living uh, in, in those circumstances. And they did that. Um, the people who started Tamara were radicals um, in the 60s and 70s, who were part of like the left in Germany and different movements there, and they were trying to analyze why kind of the utopian promise of the 60s kind of failed or, you know, didn't come to fruition. And they began to realize that it was core issues around love and sexuality, or what they call eros, that weren't being fully brought to consciousness. And they were creating these kind of obstructions, these blocks of jealousy and envy and possessiveness and so on. And so they kind of incubated over many years a new social model uh, with a whole bunch of social tools to, to support it. Uh, so that, that, that's, that's one example that I find really uh, fascinating, and I'm seeing their practices now being uh, brought into other communities and so on. So uh, you, you're coming from the outside, and you go to Tamera, and uh, they have this, um, this practice of trust, which includes having consensual sex between people who agree to have sex. How did that work personally? How does that work? How do those basic feelings of jealousy and possessiveness, how does it work? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, a bit of, it's becoming a very uh, hot topic uh, in, in our society in general. I don't know if you saw the New York Times had a uh, big article about open marriages uh, last Sunday. No, um, no, I didn't. So, um, you know, we have to, you know, there's a very fascinating book called Sex at Dawn uh, by Christopher Ryan. And, um, yeah, he really, in that book, he and his co-author really look at uh, the whole prehistory of humanity and 
basically argue that monogamy is a very recent uh, construct, and um, you know that it had to do with patriarchy and, and, and property rights and so on, and that, and that in nomadic tribal societies, you know, relationship patterns tend to be a bit a bit looser. They might be multi-partner or, or whatever. So, um, so I think that's very fascinating. If we look at what's happening in our public sphere in, in, in the U.S. You know, there's this sort of sexual hysteria is uh, a major thing that's happening. Uh, and, um, you know, whether it's Bill O'Reilly and, and uh, his abusive behavior or Trump and his abusive behavior or Bill Clinton and his philandering or Andrew Weiner and his sexting, um, there, there's this kind of um, fixation around sexuality, which to me suggests that there, there is something new that's trying to, to break into consciousness mm-hmm. and into, into our world. Um, you know, so there are different roots for jealousy and possessiveness, and I think one of them is uh, scarcity and, and fear and anxiety. You know, like a woman particularly wants to feel safe and secure if she's going to have a child. That's such a huge long-term investment of energy and time and so on. Um, so, you know, in, in Tamara, women, for instance, have to ask for permission from the community to have a child, but if they do have a child in the community, they know that that child will be taken care of uh, by the whole community uh, for, for, for its whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's, that's pretty uh, significant, I think. Yeah. How was it so, for you? How was it for you? Was, uh, was it rebalancing for you on a personal level? Yeah, I mean, I actually, while I was, I've only been there for short periods of time, so I didn't really have any, um, you know, erotic encounters there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's, there's one woman from the community that subsequently, you know, I, I, I became lovers with. But even just being in the field of, 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 a, of a place that has a different way of handling this was very healing and empowering. And I've brought a lot of those communication practices. Uh, you know, it took me a long time, actually, but, but more fully into my life uh, now, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, you know, if women feel safe and secure, if they feel that um, they're not going to lose their husband and be forced to care for their child on their own in a, in a, in a competitive environment for 15 or 18 years, um, then that, that'll immediately create more of a free space. And then, you know, then we have to sort out what's, you know, cultural and what's biological and so on. And they have a lot of tools for doing that. They created something called the forum, mm-hmm. uh, where yeah. people come in a circle and, and people go in the center and act out their relationships. So everything that normally gets kind of hidden uh, or kind of suppressed is, is forced out into the open there, which I think is pretty pretty fascinating. Maybe also quite time consuming. Um, right. They also they, they conceive of uh, erotic erotic satisfaction as a sort of sacred community shared responsibility. You know, so some people who um, you know are, are uh, sort of willing become in a way like um, they become they train to. to kind of uh, be available at, at this place called the Temple of, uh, Temple of Love. Mm-hmm. So you might have an older member of the community who doesn't have a partner, and she can go to the, or he or she can go to the Temple of Love and then find somebody to, to be with. Uh, so it's an extremely uh, provocative and different uh, model. And um, strangely, the environment there in some ways feels quite wholesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's definitely... You know, a trip to go there and, and begin to think about how differently we could construct uh, our model. Sounds scary and delicious. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, <it's> delicious. 
Exactly. <laughs> so in your book, because in your book you talk about love, a new intensity of communion, you talk about love as, as one of the ongoing solutions to our problem of destroying ourselves. So what's the difference for you between love and sexuality, Daniel? Well, I mean, there, there, there were sort of eros, which, which encompasses a much wider uh, gamut of yeah, uh, yeah. possibilities and, and, and experiences. I mean, um, you know, I feel that, um, you know, uh, so basically like what I try to do in the book is look at everything as a kind of evolutionary uh, process. Um, you know, that's, um, you know that, that in a way we're just in the inertia of all these ideologies and systems that began. I mean, we, you know, a couple hundred years ago, we were riding around in horse and buggies or, or schooner ships. We didn't even have electricity and so on. You know, so things have been um, evolving, yeah, incredibly uh, quickly. Uh, and, um, you know, one thing that, you know, if you live in a city environment, you know, the generations tend to be very separate, like the young people are doing their own thing, and often the old people feel very uh, alone and isolated and so on, or people who are not maybe part of, uh, you know, what, whatever's happening feel cut off. You know, so, um, so yeah, but I think that, the, the, that human, human beings maybe really are happier and, and more satisfied if, if they're embedded in kind of multi-generational communities, you know, where old people and children are together and, and, and where there's some shared sense of uh, purpose and culture and so on. And I, and I feel that uh, Tamara is kind of uh, modeling uh, uh -huh. this as an alternative, you know. Okay, so... Uh, yeah, I would, I would say that sexuality is, only, is, only, is, a, is a crucial part, but it's only, uh, you know, a, a part of, of, of a whole network of, of you know, types of relationships that are you know, in a larger sense, uh, you know, erotic or, or have, uh, or, you know, have a, right. a component of, of love and, and connection, you know. Yeah, well, Dieter says that sexuality is a, he says, is more than powerful force. It's a super, yeah. It's, it's a, a super power, power right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, what's, what's been happening in the U.S. recently really makes that very, very clear. Um, that uh, we have this, um, you know, that, that without it being handled properly, you know, there, it has so many negative consequences. You know, so you have like alpha males, you know, like Trump and his cronies who, you know, yeah. seek to amass wealth and power, you know, so they can have sexual access. Exactly. You know, and, and, and that's probably always going to be the case unless you were to reconstruct, redesign society so that sexual access uh, wasn't such an issue. And didn't require uh, manipulation and deception and, and uh, you know, uh, power domination over others and so on. So I, I think that that is a very, very um, crucial piece of the puzzle that uh, it, isn't, isn't addressed often. But, but, but now I find there's no juice around. It's, it's, it seems to be totally forbidden for people to flirt. It seems like... Uh, Erotic juice is absent from this society. So how, how to keep the those things together? There's so much uh, there's so much restriction that uh, people don't dare exchange. Uh, I don't know pollen, right? 
yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. Creepy. If I, if I personal. If I, if I don't know if I personally um, uh, find that to be the case, but I mean, I, li I live in a particular uh, context. Right. Right. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, regenerative solutions. Totally. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I know that the, you know, the name of your podcast is Future Primitive. Well, you say it. You say I got it. You say the archaic and the postmodern. Yeah. That's future primitive. Exactly. I mean, I, I definitely feel that that to go forward, we have to you know wind back a little bit, and um, you know, and, and in some case, in many ways, um, indigenous and traditional cultures, you know, really provide some some important models uh, for how we could kind of redesign, you know, even this mass civilization that we have now so that it is uh, more, you know, wonderful to, to be a person and, and also more ecologically uh, just and also more um, financially equitable. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the system we're in right now is has gone extremely out of balance and, you know, ultimately things that are out of balance ultimately collapse. And I think there are a lot of signs, you know, with, with, with the Trump victory, we can really see that, um, you know, that that's not just some kind of weird aberration of the system. It's somehow a logical uh, endpoint of it. Hitting you know, bottom. It, it, what's that? Hitting bottom. Yeah, we hope. We don't know, yeah. we don't know where bottom is. Bottom yeah. <laughs> may still be a way, a way down, you know, but it's heading in that direction, you know. I mean, uh, we've seen hitting, hitting bottom. You know, we saw it in Nazi Germany, and um, you know, we ho I hope we don't. You know, I pray and hope that we don't have to go back all all, all that way there again. But um, you know, there there are there are definitely some indicators that it could go uh, as dark as that. You know. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, regenerative solutions. If, if we're going to make a jump, we have to first enough enough of us. You know, um, there must be kind of a tipping point where enough of us realize um, why we're in this, uh, you know, catastrophe, you know, what the roots of it are, and then what are the solution sets um, in different areas, you know, technologically, you know, industrially, you know, the types of changes we would have to make to our energy system and our farming system and our eating habits, um, our education, you know, and then also socially, like the types of changes we have to make to, our governments and our and the way corporations are organized and the way the way you know our economic system, uh, how value is exchanged and, 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 and what the what what the kind of beliefs and ideologies are that are that are that are running the, the whole system. But but there are seven billion people on this planet. That's the that's a discussion I often have with somebody who say, well. Some of us are becoming more aware, more enlightened, in the sense of uh, of what of being grateful for what we have and wanting to help preserve it. But what about the fact that there are seven billion people on this planet? Well, that is something that I really do explore in the book, and and you know, well, first of all, obviously nobody can say what's going to happen, and obviously it, it does feel like we're in. You know, there's a lot of entropy uh, happening, and, and um, you know, it's possible that it's it's not salvageable, and, and we may see a, a real crash of human civilization and, and a reduction in population. And you know, obviously, that 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 would be a sad outcome. Um, you know, even though there are seven billion people on the planet, 
you know, in theory, we could still take care of everybody and even elevate them to a higher standard of living. I mean, one of the big um, influences on, on my work is Buckminster Fuller, uh, who wrote books in the 60s like the Utopia or Oblivion mm-hmm. and Operation Spaceship Earth. And he really saw that, um, you know, we had to think about it as a as design, design problem. You know, and, and design is obviously a very powerful motif in our society, you know, whether it's, you know, user interface design on computers or social networks or computer, you know, whatever. Um, but we don't really apply that, that design intelligence to thinking about, um, you know, the, the, the society on a deeper level or on a larger scale. And, um, yeah, so, for instance, like, if we look at, um, you know, Facebook, I mean, it's a, it's a social network tool that 2 billion people uh, you know, more than a quarter of the Earth's population are using regularly. Um, but it, you know, and it helps people to connect, but it's not really designed in a way to um, lead to a more ethical society or one that's more grounded in ecological principles. But uh, in theory, you know, either Facebook could evolve into something else or some other type of tool could evolve that um, really did help people make a kind of rapid uh, shift in this direction. And then you have, uh, you know, in the book I talk about, you know, big institutions like the Catholic Church, for instance, is over, I think, a billion people are identified as Catholics. Uh, you know, Pope Francis uh, recently wrote this incredible, very beautiful essay, Care for Our Common Home, where he kind of uh, integrates this ecological vision into Catholicism and basically argues that um, to be Catholic means to you know, want to be somebody who takes care of our common home, preserve it for future generations. So that's, that's uh, you know, intrinsic to, to a Catholic uh, spirituality. And um, I think that, that also provides a great potential. It shows that even though the traditional religious structures could almost be conceived of as a ready-made social infrastructure that could be repurposed uh, to, you know, bring about the types of uh, changes and practices, you know. So you could have, for instance... What if the Catholic Church, you know, focused on bioremediation and people wouldn't just go to Sunday school, they would also be taught permaculture practices or how to yeah. reforest uh, areas or, you know, detoxify uh, areas and so on. You know, there's a, there's a huge amount of human potential that, that could be uh, liberated uh, for, for uh, everybody's benefit. Well, it, it entails that enough people change their mind about why they're here. Yes, definitely. Uh, uh, like you say in the book, I mean, uh, uh, we're here to serve each other. Yeah, exactly. And that's where one could even hope that uh, the Trumpocalypse, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and its acceleration of, like, you know, all the negatives may almost be the necessary prelude for another level of breakthrough. Um, you know, in, in, in you know, one way, I mean, I, I, as I said, I tend to try to look at our situation as an evolutionary process, and I think um, in the same way, yeah, we see, like, um, you know, evolution in nature moving from competition to cooperation and yes. symbiosis, uh, it, it, it may be the same thing can happen on the level of human society. Once, as you said, once enough of us in particular kind of enough people who are sort of in the cultural elite who have uh, capital, both culture capital and, and, and financial capital, uh, really recognize the necessity of, of making a movement in this direction. If you were telling a child 
a bedside story, mythological story about what we are going through, what what we have created in the last 150 years and how we're going to get through it and what it will look like for us to be butterflies who don't even remember what it was to be caterpillars. What would you say? Like, take a moment and think of yourself telling a mythological story about what's going on. Uh, wow, that's an interesting. It might take me, uh, you know, a few days to work that one out. But um, <laughs> Well, what about you closed your eyes and, and you just uh, ad-libbed about it? Yeah, I mean... Um, you know, I, I would say that, um, for, well, first of all, you know, there, there's, um, we're, we're in an incredibly, uh, what, what, you know, a mysterious and amazing circumstance. Mm. And in, in a way, our culture tries to, you know, because it's so rational and materialistic, you know, denies the, what, what a child, you know, immediately understands to be kind of like the, 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 the wonder mm-hmm. of, uh, of, the, of the situation. I mean, we're on this tiny rock spinning around an enormous gaseous, you know, uh, uh, fireball mm-hmm. in, in an infinite abyss, you know, the, the whole solar system spinning around a black hole instead of our galaxy. I mean, it's all pretty extraordinary. And then, you know, the fact that, like, let's think about how the, you know, we have uh, eclipses and the moon, you know, and the, and the sun, mm-hmm. uh, you know, are so far apart yet uh, are exactly the same size in the sky it really almost feels like the, 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 there's a mythopoetic dimension to our, our real uh, experience here that our society uh, negates. Beautiful. So I think that, that would be a, a starting point. Beautiful. And then also to look at how life uh, evolved, as I mentioned, from competition to cooperation, you know, so that, um, you, know, our, 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 you know, once there were microorganisms competing in the environment for scarce resources, they began to learn how to work together to make more complex uh, structures like yes. limbs and eyes and so on. And humanity's been kind of doing that. I mean, in a way, like you know, the, even a satellite dish is almost like an eye that we've that we've all come together to build together, as if we're microorganisms creating something. You know, and, and there's a huge amount of cooperation that's already going on invisibly. I mean, to go to your local cafe and get a coffee. You know, the beans are from Africa, and the oil is from <laughs> Russia, and the cup is from China, and, uh-huh. you know, the, the worker might be from South America, you know. So, so we're already meshed in, the, in this gigantic uh, web of, of co- cooperation and interdependence. Uh, and, and then the next step would be to become conscious of that and, and, and bring that understanding into our economic systems and our social systems and kind of um, replace or supersede the current uh, malfunctioning systems that are based on domination and hierarchy with ones that uh, are more holistic and, and have, uh, you know, better, better opportunity for long-term, uh, you know, uh, survival and survivability. And then also, I mean, I'm also, you know, from my work with shamanism and, you know, yes. ayahuasca and so on, I, I totally, um, um, you know, I would say that I, I know that we have uh, tremendous psychic abilities, um, that we haven't even begun to tap into. Yes. And uh, that could be a, a great area of uh, discovery for the future, that uh, humans would actually um, develop ways to enhance our psychic abilities, to build up our chi or, or you know, uh, 
you know, Bastro Kundalini and so on. Uh, so that, that to me is a very exciting prospect. And it's something that we really see already uh, in a lot of our films. You know, if you look at The Matrix yes. or Star Wars or Harry Potter, they're kind of giving us the same myth over and over again that, you know, we have to learn how to use the Force or, you know, master the Matrix or, you know, like Avatar or whatever. So that, that to me, is, they're actually pointing towards something real. It's not just a folktale. You know, we, we have hidden capacities and, and helpers that we can draw upon, uh, you know, just, just as all of our great legends and stories tell us. And different ways of making love. We could invent uh, different ways of making love than uh, mechanical ways. And also, I was thinking about when you were talking, um, instead of feeling dread or detachment, then we we could move into joy, which perhaps has been our birthright all the time. But, yeah, I, mean, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, we, we live in a... I mean, if you look at like um, somebody like Stan Groff and his whole idea of uh, the, the perinatal matrices connected to the birth trauma right. or the birth experience, like in a way we're in this kind of Saturn phase of like we will see this closing off of possibility and you know, the darkness and, and a lot of our culture is dystopian and shows us these visions of like wastelands and horrible futures, you know, but yeah, we, what if we focused instead on how much more amazing uh, our society could become and how much more connected and loving uh, we could be, um, you know, and, and that, 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 you know, there, there is an under, undertone of that, you know, happening. Uh, and I think, you know, that can become more of a dominant uh, tone. I mean, how much joy do you experience in your life? Uh, it varies day to day. Or week to week. <laughs> I mean, you know, sometimes I get very down and it looks so hopeless. Yeah, I know. You know, but, um, you know, I, I definitely, I mean, I'm, in, I'm, in a, I'm in a good mood today. The sun is shining. Yeah, and, right. And, um, you know, my, my, my innate tendency is, uh, you know, optimistic, uh, you know, e even uh, idealistic, and that I really do feel that... Um, you know, despite all the negative things that are happening, you know, they're, they're almost, they're maybe almost necessary so that we uh, are forced to access our, our deeper latent capacities. So do you think we can have revolution and joy at the same time? Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's the only type of revolution that's going to be worth having. You know, I think the idea of having a violent revolution is, is totally past tense. Uh -huh. uh, partially because the you know the, the the weapons of domination and surveillance are so incredibly powerful now, uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a sense, instead we have to kind of re-inhabit the social field, you know, with uh, this this new this new spirit of uh, of, of love and, and connection. And plus, uh, I've been saying for a long time the the violent revolution has been going on, and they call it crime. Uh, yeah, I suppose, yeah, I suppose this, that's true. I mean, I mean crime that is a, part a, of the violence. Primitive, primitive effort to kind of, um, uh, some, you know, from, well, I mean, there's, there's poor, pe poor people crime and there's rich people crime. And obviously the rich people crime is, is you know, much more uh, powerful and in some ways more invisible. I mean, if you think about how, like, um, you know, the pharmaceutical companies yeah. uh, did, didn't want to give uh, generic AIDS drugs to Africa for, for cheap, And so 10 million people died uh, or something like that because they, they couldn't access these Western medicines, you know, or potentially what's happening with uh, 
pesticides and its impact on uh, children's intelligence and health. Yeah, you know, so there, there, there are these huge crimes that are happening, or the desecration of the natural environment by these corporations. You know, so um, yeah, I mean, I mean, in a, in a way, we need a, the the antidote to all of that, which is uh, a different model uh, that that also I think requires you know a, 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 at least a short term. Um, kind of um, sacrifice uh, individually and collectively, a willingness to forego uh, certain excesses, uh, whether it's travel or meeting or, uh, you know, buying so many gadgets, you know, so, so that we become, we, we return to balance uh, with, with our uh, earthly environment. How did we get to Trump? Well, to me, he's like the perfect uh, manifestation of, uh, of the culture's uh, lies and, and hypocrisy. And in particular, it's, uh, you know, in a way, it's like he's, uh, it, well, in, 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 the, in, the, in the house it is now, I really talk about um, initiation and looking at even the ecological crisis as a collective initiation. Yes. Uh, but in, in tribal societies, uh, the point of initiation or traditional cultures is uh, in a way to break through the, the ego construct. You know, so that the individual recognizes that they're actually uh, a part of a larger whole, both in terms of their community and, and, and the natural world, and also the cosmos. You know, with these other multiple multiple levels of, of cosmic reality. So, uh, you know, but our our culture did away with initiation as it became totally focused on you know materialism and rationality and short term gain. So, in a way, Trump is like the ultimate manifestation of a culture that um, doesn't have initiation, that just uh, mm-hmm. enshrines the ego and, and the kind of narcissistic self as, as, as the apex. You know, so I, as I say, you know, he's, a, he's really perfect now uh, if we recognize that he's a collective shadow projection um, and then um, use the energy that generates to, uh, to, to break through to the next level. I see like he's the baby boomer par excellence. I exactly. see. I, yeah. I mean, the part of the the baby boomer uh, society that uh, went in the direction of um, of complete possession, and I mean possession in many ways. Yeah, totally. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, in, in a way. I mean, once again, I look at everything evolutionarily, so I don't really kind of work. You know, I don't think it's very valuable to apportion kind of blame. But I mean, there you know, there is something to be said for the baby boomers coming of age in, in the in the you know in the sixties in, in the time of the hippies and so on they 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 um, they, they sort of reached the, the new set of values and ideals but they couldn't hold them and uh, ultimately they they uh, forfeited a lot of those values for uh, you know comfort and for profit and part of us neoliberals you know like like Clinton and Obama have kind of fed into this deception, you know, that you can have like a partial um, kind of success where you can continue the machinery of, of domination and exploitation, but also have some civil rights and some liberal culture. You know, so I, I think that whole bubble has popped now, and uh, we can see that the, the level of change that's going to need to happen is much deeper. Mm-hmm. Once again, we need as a society to overcome our sense of entitlement. Yeah, absolutely, which is very... Uh, so you know, profoundly yeah. rooted. Yeah. As Americans, actually. But then then the French think they're the 
the most intelligent people in the world. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but you know, and unfortunately, you know, we've learned that intelligence isn't everything. I mean, we also need wisdom. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and uh, you know, for for wisdom, we we need to maybe harken back to some of these uh, older cultures. You know, like the, like the indigenous cultures, who um, you know preserved the different models of how of how we need to you know walk on the earth or with the earth. Did you did you find that uh, the Kogi people had a sense of humor? Yeah, I felt you know, they had a sense of humor, definitely. Um, you know, but uh, they, you know they also, on the other hand, living in a very different uh, reality uh, than we are. Which is like I, I really felt that the, the, the sort of leaders of the of the of the Kogi and the Arawak uh, people that I met. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and by the way, just people don't know that those, those are cultures, indigenous cultures from Colombia. Right. Uh, they're, they're sort of a pre-Incan civilization that preserved their integrity by kind of moving away and higher up into the mountains and kind of uh, keeping themselves separate. Call us the younger brothers, and they, they call themselves the elder brother. Yes. And uh, they they would have been happy to stay separate, but they realized that. What we're doing to the planet's ecosystems is going to destroy everything. So now they're reaching out and trying to uh, give us instruction. And uh, yeah, they, they have a sense of humor, but they're also really embedded in a kind of a sacred context or sacred reality, much like the Tibetan Buddhists, where they really see everything as a continuum. And one of their uh, you know the, the teachings that they brought to us when we were doing the retreats with them was that for them there's a uh, intrinsic reciprocal relationship between our level of uh, development, our spiritual development, our consciousness, and the physical world that we see around us. So if we're in a physical world where we're seeing toxicity and Trump and Fox News, that's all reflecting our own uh, inner undevelopment. And um, I found that to be a very fascinating uh, perspective and one that I've thought about a great deal. And they pra- and they uh, they practice rites of passages, which we don't have in this society. They do practice rites of passages. I mean, they have some very extreme uh, practices. They don't use, uh, you know, ayahuasca or, or psychedelics as a lot of uh, indigenous groups do. But they um, they uh, use the coca leaf uh, as as a, a tool. Right. And they also have long, dark retreats. Like apparently, the young the young boy who's going to be a teacher. And their community spends many years in a dark retreat because uh, they believe that uh, the spiritual world begins in darkness. And to become a master, you have to first become totally acquainted with the ways of darkness. Uh, Daniel, we're coming to the end of our conversation. And uh, what I'd like to ask you is, um, how do you see a sacred revolution? question um, yeah it's uh, sacred revolution yeah take I mean, your time take your time because yeah yeah I mean uh, um, I mean I guess we're, we're seeing the beginnings of something like that with with things that manifest like standing rock you know which was kind of mm-hmm. among many things was like a teaching between the indigenous people and, and the modern people um and um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I, you know, I. I um, yeah. I mean, the the idea of the sacred is one that our society has definitely lost, and um, if we recapture it, it may really help us to uh, 
to make a really profound uh, shift that's both uh, internal and uh, external, you know. Because I feel uh, all through your book, that's kind of, if I would take two words, we can't reform what is uh, because there's no sacrality to the system as it is. So I feel that's what you're saying, that we need we need to put these two things together, sacred and revolution. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I guess that's it. I mean, uh, that, that's a high bar. <laughs> Those are but, pretty intense words. But uh, we can also talk about a spiritual evolution. Maybe that's a little bit, or a consciousness evolution. Yes. Uh, maybe that's a little bit easier for people to take. But it, it might be that in the future, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll sort of, um, you know, have, re, you know, have have a new understanding of uh, the sacredness of uh, of life and, and so mm-hmm. on, mm-hmm. Um, and, and that'll become something that'll be embedded in our in our way of understanding and in our, in our institutions and so on. Well, get the book, people. It's a beautiful book, and uh, you make yourself quite vulnerable in the book, and I thank you for that because uh, that way it speaks to the heart as well as the mind. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I in no way hold myself out as like a paragon of uh, virtue. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, I did the best I could to convey my, uh, you know, the understanding I gained from really thinking about it uh, over many years, you know. Right, and let's, uh, let's create joy. Good idea. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm happy we we were together today, Daniel. Thank you so so much. Thank you so much for reaching out. Let's let's be in touch soon. All right. Okay.